uh, applications today, and a lot of them run on Yarn, so you can run Hive on Tez and Spark, uh, both on the same uh, sets of nodes and have Yarn manage all the containers between them. Um, but, you know, real quick, here is a, uh, you know, what the architecture looks like. Runs, Spark runs as a Yarn app, executors are run in Yarn containers, on Yarn node managers. In EMR, um, we run node managers on both core and task nodes, and you create a cluster. The difference is a task node doesn't have the HDFS data node. So when you scale out or scale in, you're not impacting any data in HDFS. However, um, most customers are storing the data in S3, so the shuffling of, of data in HDFS doesn't really make as much of a difference. Um, one common question is where is the Spark UI and Spark on Yarn? You can access it through the Resource Manager UI. If you go to the Resource Manager and find your Yarn app, there's a link for the Application Tracking UI. You can click on that. It'll proxy you through to the Spark UI, whether it's running in a driver in client mode, where it's running on the master node of your cluster, or in cluster mode, where um, it's running in the application master and proxying you through uh, to that node where it is. EMR configures uh, executors using dynamic allocation. We've been doing that for quite some time. Um, you know, you can still use Spark Submit and specify the amount of RAM and cores for an executor. And if you had one large multi-tenant job or one large job per cluster, um, that would make a lot of sense. However, if you have, say, many applications running at once and you don't want to specify amount of resources for Spark to hold, uh, dynamic allocation is very useful. So by default, we'll set the memory and the number of cores um, to the, uh, the specifications that make most sense for the nodes in your core group. So we'll, you know, if your core group is a R3 2XL, we'll make the executor size enough where you can pack as many as possible in on those nodes. But we won't actually specify the number of them to use. Yarn will do that at runtime. So as Yarn thinks that you need more executors, it'll add more and more on. And when we talk about auto-scaling, you'll see that dynamic allocation is useful to scale out clusters and have Spark autom Yarn automatically add more and more capacity as it goes through. However, if you were, say, running one large application, like, say, just a cluster that was dedicated for one Spark streaming application, you can easily create one large executor per node by using the maximize resource allocation uh, option. That'll basically calculate what's the largest executor put on each node, and then that job will statically use it. So the number of executors will be static for the duration of that job as well. Um, many options to submit Spark jobs. Uh, we've got uh, notebooks and um, IDs on the cluster. We support Apache Zeppelin by default. You can, with a couple clicks, have it installed. Um, but if you want, you can bootstrap on something like Jupyter um, or RStudio, depending on you know, what your data scientists need, what your developers like. Um, we do have the Spark Thrift server as well available. It's on the master node if you want to connect via ODBC or JDBC drivers. We don't start it by default, but you can run uh, that command and quickly start it up and then connect to Spark SQL using uh, those drivers. We have, you can choose to install Uzi on the cluster. Uzi has Spark actions, so say you had a complicated processing pipeline and you wanted to create a DAG of Spark jobs and have one job wait while another part of the DAG completes and then join them later. Um, with Uzi, you can specify these uh, very complex uh, processing pipelines. Also, you can use the UI and Hue um, on the latest uh, EMR to actually draw out that pipeline and have a nice visual representation of what you're building for Uzi. Or you can just use the Spark, uh, Spark Shell Spark Submit. We also have a uh, jo uh, a blog post on the AWS Big Data blog um, that talks about how to install a Spark job server as well. So you do you can provision really whatever you need uh, using Bootstrap Actions if it's not there. Um, actually, we could cut over real quick to um, my laptop to show um, just a couple of these UIs. Um, as I mentioned, Zeppelin here and the the DataZoo demo will also use Zeppelin, but you can uh, easily create notes. You can save to Git. You can 
uh, save to S3 by configuring the notebook uh, in the Zeppelin site to save the notebook file in S3, as you can see here. Um, you know, lots of nice graphs and very simple visualizations. Um, but if you want, as I mentioned before, this is running on an EMR cluster I just created. You can install RStudio um, and use RStudio or things like uh, Jupyter as well. So um, if, the, so if the tool isn't available by default, you can easily install it um, on as well. Um, however, once you kind of have a production workflow and let's say you want it to not only orchestrate running Spark jobs, but create the clusters, take the clusters down, you have, you know, coordinating, uh, terminating and creating uh, different resources, um, you probably want whatever scheduling uh, those jobs to run outside the cluster versus, say, running Uzi on a cluster. So there's a couple options. Um, here are some popular ones. You can actually use the Amazon EMR step API. When you create a cluster, you can submit a step, which is a unit of work. It could be a Hive job or a Spark job. Um, and actually have uh, EMR tooling around it to say when this job completes, terminate the clusters. It's a very easy way to just fire off uh, transient clusters, shut them down, or you can have a long-running cluster and submit steps to it over the lifetime of the cluster. Um, you can also use Lambda to submit steps if you, say, have a job that needs to kick off certain times of day. And actually, there's an interesting blog post that Admiral um, posts about using Lambda to, to fire off uh, Spark clusters. You can use that. Um, also, like bucket preconditions, that sort of thing. Lambda is very useful and a lightweight way to kick off these jobs. Um, or you can use something like Data Pipeline, which is an AWS service that can orchestrate these workflows, um, or Airflow, Luigi, or other schedulers that you can run on EC2. Um, you know, one thing that we also see from just how people are leveraging Spark and AWS is really leveraging all the different storage layers where you might have certain types of customer data stored in DynamoDB with raw, maybe Clickstream and S3 and being able to use Spark to join all these disparate data sets um, in your analytics. Um, EMR actually just open sourced our uh, Hive DynamoDB connector. It's available, you can see it on AWS Labs. Um, and it also works with Spark as well. So you can write Spark jobs against DynamoDB. Um, you can uh, access data in RDS or Elasticsearch using the Spark Elasticsearch connector. You can access data in Amazon Redshift using the uh, Spark Redshift connector, Spark streaming with Apache Kafka or Amazon Kinesis. And finally, accessing data in S3 using EMRFS, which is our, um, our own S3 connector that allows you to performantly access data in S3 with Spark. Um, you know, that's one key theme of most Spark architectures we see on AWS is decoupling your storage and your compute. Uh, S3 is designed for 11.9s of durability, extremely scalable, low cost, and is a great place to store huge data sets um, in a very, very durable and available way. Also, it's available across AZs as the regional endpoint. So if uh, you want to, say, fire up a cluster in another AZ, you don't need to copy any data from AZ to AZ. S3 is accept uh, accessible in all of them. Um, one quick tip, though, is that for folks running uh, something like uh, Spark SQL, you can store your hive tables in something like Amazon Aurora or RDS, um, so that if you want to shut your cluster down because your data is durable in S3, you don't need to cluster up all the time. Um, you don't need to recreate all of your tables when you recreate your cluster. Um, and you can configure that using uh, values in HiveSite. Um, just a couple tips for S3. Um, you, know, you want to try and avoid key names in lexicographical order if you're doing very, very large scans. It'll increase your throughput and list performance. Um, also, utilizing compression 
um, and splittable compression if it's, a, it's appropriate depending on your file size will really reduce the bandwidth from S3 to the cluster uh, nodes in EC2. Um, and using columnar formats like Parquet, and as, as many of you know, Spark has really great integration with Parquet to easily create data frames from Parquet files. Um, so that's, you know, besides just usability, performance also makes a big difference if you're just filtering down and selecting columns. Um, just a quick overview of Spark security, really just focusing on encryption here. EMR, if you have, say, a HIPAA workload or requirements around encryption, um, it's pretty easy to encrypt uh, all the different data layers involved in your cluster. And that doesn't just include the disks on your cluster. It also includes S3 and internode transit. So with uh, EMR security configurations, this is actually just a representation in the console, but it's, you, know, you can create it from the API. You can create these security configurations, specify either AWS KMS keys or encryption material providers to get keys out of, say, an HSM or some other custom, uh, custom key vendor that you have. Um, you, you, know, you save it. You tell a cluster to use it, and EMR will encrypt all the local disks. EMRFS will use either client-side or server-side S3 encryption, depending on uh, what you've specified, and an encrypt uh, Spark uh, in-transit encryption as well. Um, one feature that we recently released uh, two weeks ago is auto-scaling. So when you're considering uh, performance for your Spark jobs, and because uh, dynamic allocation is enabled by default, um, you can set an auto-scaling policy with EMR where you know, EMR provides a bunch of yarn metrics and uh, one useful one is say yarn uh, memory percentage used. You could, so with EMR when you create your cluster you can add a policy that says um, when yarn is using 80% of RAM add on two more nodes. And in the background EMR will configure CloudWatch alarms, use application auto scaling and also provide events in our console to show when your cluster is scaling up and down um, to scale out your cluster uh, when it needs more nodes. When a new uh, node manager comes up your Spark application, if dynamic allocation is enabled, if you if you kept the default, will then if uh, you know add more uh, executors as needed to the new capacity that's come up. Um, one interesting thing also is that for scale down, we've implemented two features. One, uh, we'll scale down at the hourly boundary by default. So even if say um, your yarn memory threshold goes below with what your alarm uh, was set for, uh, we won't actually take any nodes away because you paid for them for an hour. What if another job comes uh, before the hour is up? So we'll actually wait and keep track and only take nodes out um, and terminate them um, you know, when it's nearing that hourly boundary. Um, but another thing is you can configure it to wait for task completion. So say we won't terminate any node until all running containers on that node um, are, are finished running. And what we'll do in that case is we'll blacklist that node so no more containers can be placed on it and drain the existing work. So more of a cost-saving uh, auto-scaling and then a kind of a work-preserving auto-scaling mode. And finally, to close, um, we have an upcoming feature um, for advanced spot provisioning. Many customers leverage spot to save up to 80% on their compu uh, compute costs. Um, so it's a very uh, effective way to lower your costs for your cluster. Um, this new feature will allow you, today when you create an EMR cluster, you specify an instant group with an instance type and a bid price. With um, this new functionality, you'll be able to specify a list of instances with different prices and different configurations and also different availability zones that you can launch your cluster in. And then once EMR creates a cluster, we'll look at all the different AZs, figure out what makes what AZ is the most capacity available, and then uh, from the instance types, what's the best value based on uh, your inputs, and we'll create a cluster with maybe even multiple instance types within that um, uh, group uh, to, to use. Um, also to support spot block, so if you have a job that, say, you know will finish in a four-hour duration and you don't want any spot interruptions, you can specify a spot block and we'll utilize spot block capacity um, for those instance types. 
Um, now I'll hand uh, the mic over to Yakesa from DataZoo, and he'll run over how they use Spark for ETL and data science. Thank you, John. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm having a great conference so far. Are you guys having a great conference? I can't wait for Amazon to announce their new exciting thing on the, the keynote. So waiting eagerly. All right, so uh, thanks for being here. Uh, and thanks to Amazon for hosting this session. We wanted to share some of our learning experiences as we embarked on this journey to adopt uh, data, uh, Spark at, at DataZoo. Um, and my name is Ekesa, and I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, Dong and, and Saket. Uh, we're going to uh, talk through our journey of Spark. Um, a quick spill on DataZoo, so what to expect from this session. A quick spill. I promise to keep it short. And uh, why Spark? What motivated us to actually use Spark? Uh, and, and what was it like before, right? Uh, and then the rest of the uh, uh, talk is split into two tracks. Uh, one is more engineering-oriented, data processing, uh, uh, kind of task-oriented uh, workflows, and then data science workflows. Uh, so we'll look at uh, both of them. Uh, and embedded in each section is actually a demo. And uh, so the demo, you know, the standard jitters might apply, so... Let's uh, kudos to the engineers and, and let's wish them good luck. Uh, we'll see how this works. Uh, with that said, let's get started. So uh, who is DataZoo? Well, DataZoo uh, is, a, is a petabyte scale marketing platform. We were spun out of MIT labs. Uh, we operate at internet scale. The numbers speak for themselves. And um, uh, you know, what, what, in terms of what we do is we help the brands uh, engage with the consumers along their journey. Uh, our brands is our customers, basically the advertisers. We are in the ad tech space, as you can tell. Uh, we try to, more tactically speaking, we try to uh, um, maximize the return on investment for our advertisers. So how we might do that, I'm going to cover that in, in the next couple of slides. Quick run through the numbers. Um, we, our, we have a real-time engine capability, which processes about 2 million transactions a second. So this talk is about an hour-long talk. So during this talk, our system would process about 7.2 billion transactions as I'm standing here. Uh, our systems collect about 180 terabytes of logs um, every day, and uh, we analyze about two petabytes of data on a daily basis. Um, and we operate out of 13 different regions and data centers. Uh, it's a 24 by 7 operations. The mega, big meta point from this slide, really, is we collect and store and analyze large volumes of data, like most of you. Uh, and uh, what we need to do our job well is a reliable, secure, and elastic platform that can handle iterative and interactive workloads, right? And of course, we need a heavy dose of automation. Uh, without automation, you can't run this scale of uh, you know, jobs, right? So real-time bidding. So I said we help our brands engage with their customers. So how do we do that? Well, we do that with our real-time capabilities. So I'm, going to, I'm not going to talk through each block in this picture, but here is the, I'm going to give you more concrete examples so it's more tangible. Let's say you are, you are looking for a car. You might go on the, uh, some websites. You might put in some parameters. You put in uh, the car manufacturer style, price. You might do some side-by-side -side comparisons. You might look for deals in the internet in your neighborhood. As you're doing that, you're dropping hints uh, to the medium of, of uh, and, and the websites that you are perhaps searching on, you know, might have some ad slots on the side. 
that get auctioned off in real time. And um, real-time engines like ours, we bid for those opportunities. Uh, we are not the only one. There's, we have competition. Uh, and, and the real-time auctioning uh, of ad slots at an impression level is called real-time bidding. Uh, it's basically, that, that's it in a nutshell. The one thing that I want you to note from this picture is that we, as we are bidding out there in the internet, we are sending lot, we are generating lots of events. And these events are, hey, I, I bid for this user at this price, and I won the auction. Or I bid for this user at this price, I didn't win the auction. We need to collect this data so we know uh, to adjust these bidding strategies in real time. Right? That's where data science comes in. Um, so there is a lot of logging going on, and, and uh, the real-time system spews out lots of data. That's where the 180 terabytes come from. And uh, we have our data pipeline runs through these logs on a daily basis and looking for the you know, tidbits of information and extracting nuggets of wisdom so we can feed it back into real-time engine so it can um, uh, you know, change its bidding strategies on the fly. All right, so why Spark? Um, well, Spark was, uh, um, the, the, before Spark, I'm going to show you a slide how it looked like. Uh, we were a heavy MapReduce job, uh, heavy MapReduce platform, as well as uh, we had, uh, you know, we still have uh, a, 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 a massively parallel databases, MPP databases, right, to do our ETL. Um, so we have ETLs that are going on in MapReduce, and we have ETLs going on in our MPP databases. Uh, but we, at the scale of our data, it wasn't, number one, cost-effective, and number two, it wasn't meeting the SLAs. So we, had, uh, we were under a time crunch to process this volume of data. So, and, and, and most of you are in, in, familiar with the big data space. You know all the technology offerings, so you know, MapReduce, Hive, and all the other things. The big appeal of Spark is really its, its performance, its speed, right? It gets its performance from a couple of, thing, couple of ways, right? One is in-memory data structures and computations. And number two, like John mentioned, the DAG, the Directed Acyclical Graph. If you look at a traditional database execution plan, it looks like a tree execution plan. It's a set of instructions you know, formed as a tree. That's, that's a Directed Acyclical Graph, right? Um, and then uh, it knows to avoid a shuffle when the data has already been partitioned the way it's, it's needed. So overall, Spark is very fast. I'm not going to give you a lot of this. This topic has been talked about several times. Um, contrast that with the MapReduce, where there's a lot of discussion going on within the mapper, between the mapper and the reducer. And when it kicks off a, a, a shuffle phase, there's a lot of data transfer over the internet or over the network. Uh, so a lot of discussion going on, a lot of uh, uh, you know, bytes moving around, uh, not participating in the compute function. So that's where we started to scratch our head and figure out, how do we do this? Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, it speaks to your language. You have Java, Scala, perhaps, for your data engineering tasks. Uh, Python and R, more for the analysis, if that's what you choose. But the best part is the following. They all interoperate well together, unlike its predecessors, right? So you can, you can uh, construct your data sets or data frames in one language, leave it in memory, let the other one pick up from there. It's very well integrated. Uh, streaming use cases, of course, you know, uh, it comes built in with the streaming support, which is great. 
Spark is certainly appealing, no questions, right? But Spark on EMR makes it compelling. Here is why. Amazon EMR is a very mature, elastic, uh, and secure platform. You can spin it up and down as much as you need. And uh, uh, John talked about Spark instances and auto-scaling features. Uh, and then, you know, it's a decoupled storage and compute. You only pull in the data that you need for your job, right? Unlike traditional databases where you have to load the whole thing into, into its database structures. In EMR, you just bring in the data you need for your analysis. So for these reasons, and then now uh, uh, throw in the Spark instances, it makes it much more appealing in terms of the TCO, the total cost of ownership, right? So for these reasons, Spark and EMR, you can't ignore anymore. So this is how our architecture looked like before, uh, before uh, you know, we embarked on, on Spark. So I talked about real-time bidding, generating lots of events, and we bring all those events through Kinesis Endpoint. That hasn't changed. That still is the same. And we store all the data in S3. That's our archive. And then we have these three big MapReduce jobs. Each one runs sequentially, one after the other, reading and writing out of S3, right? Now you can tell there's a lot of discussion going on, right? So this is where it wasn't as efficient as we wanted it to be. Um, and then, of course, we have the data analytics. See that, that little giphy that's bouncing up and down? That's our analytics engine. That's data science producing signals back into the real-time engine. And uh, Socket is going to cover a little bit of that coming up. One thing I want to mention before I leave this slide is the ecosystem of Amazon services. S3, EMR, they're all great. But the other things that actually glue everything together, like the IAMs, the VPCs, the uh, Direct Connect, uh, the DynamoDB, they are vital to run any production workloads as well. I just want to call that out. All right, so that's the picture we had before, right? That's transitioning out. So we thought long and hard, how do we do this? So our data science team actually started exploring new ways to write their algorithms. And then they ran into Spark. And then they followed by engineering team. Um, I have the pleasure of working with both teams, so you know, we bounce ideas off of each other. When the data science team started working with Spark, we said, hey, you know, maybe we should give it a try. Traditional ETL, you think of a database, right? Informatica and whatever tools work for you. Uh, classic you know, database workloads. But then we said, you know, why don't we try Spark? So we, we embarked on this journey. Nothing changed on the left-hand side. It's still Kinesis. Nothing changed on the right-hand side. It is still S3. But how we process the data changed. We restructured our workflows into Spark jobs. One iterates on the other, right? It's an iterative workflow. All the data is stored in memory. We iterate over and over again until we get the final result, dump it in S3, and, and it starts all over again, right? But then, at the time that we were building this uh, Spark pipeline, we also thought about, hey, we have multiple teams here, right? We have engineering teams, multiple of them. We have, you know, data science team. How do we make this code more reusable across the board? So what we did was we created this another, we refactored the code base such that the foundation or the, the common backend is factored out of that application logic. So we have one system 
that, no, that way it handles all the infrastructure level things, things like logging, monitoring, alerting, uh, you know, auto scaling and things like that. You know, integration with Lambda, John mentioned this one, so we use that as well. You can fire up a cluster automatically using Lambda. So we kind of refactored all of those things and pushed it one layer down for maximum code reuse. So that's another team doing it. And then we support all those libraries on top of that engine. So the, the foundation doesn't care which library you use. You can use Spark SQL, you can use Spark MLlib, you can use anything you want. And by the way, that's where we expect the innovation to continue. That's why I have dot, 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 right? While the EMR and, and the common backend stays the same, we expect a lot of innovation to come in that tier. So that's basically the picture. Now let's look at how that, got, that simplified our lives, right? Now you can compare and contrast. What happened to that picture with big three MapReduce jobs, running, lot of processing, lot of disk, right? Got simplified. Very efficient in terms of compute, in terms of, uh, 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 in terms of processing times, a much simplified architecture. And we have even refactored the code so there's just one code base running all different applications. With that said, now let me invite up uh, Dong, and he's going to walk us to the uh, ETL uh, uh, part of the uh, uh, workload. Thank you, Kesa. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about the ETL pipeline data zoo. Um, you are looking at a typical pipeline. This is also one of our most critical pipeline. Um, on the top left side, you are looking at event data. That is billions of records per day. There are our impressions, attributions, events. On the bottom left, you are looking at the reference data. Those are campaign configurations, audience retargeting. Um, such data can be also large. Um, some of those uh, configurations can easily be half a billion records, so they're not trivial either. Um, on the right side, that's the uh, product of the ETL process. So you're looking at application logs, exception data sets, but most importantly, our reporting data sets. In the middle is our ETL engine, and I'm going to describe to you our uh, ever journey in finding a better ETL engine. About four or five years ago, we adopted the MPP database. Um, we run MPP database on, in our colo. It served us well. However, we quickly ran into some issues. Uh, we have hardware stability issues. At any point of time, we cannot be sure a single cluster can support all of our production load. We ended up provisioning multiple clusters that compounded our production problems. Um, we have uh, two DBAs constantly watching other two clusters, a lot of heavy maintenance. Um, we have unpredictable um, work time. We don't know with how long each um, pipeline is going to finish. And, uh, it's not elastic. It takes us months to plan and execute a cluster expansion. So that is not working well. Um, the next step, we looked at it, uh, running the MPP at the cloud environment. Um, we couldn't get the uh, multi-node working at the time in cloud, uh, in AWS, um, some networking issues. So we ended up with a single node MPP running in AWS um, and with the largest uh, I2 instance we can get at a time. Um, it solved a lot of problems. It's stable. Uh, we have predictable execution time. Um, but we still have two problems. Uh, we found out that uh, it's still a fixed capacity. So if we project business is going to grow three times, it's going to exhaust all the capacities uh, that the I2 instance node can support. 
And uh, um, we also found our application stack is written for the hosted solution and does not take advantage of all the, all the cloud can offer. Um, as Akasa mentioned, that our data science team started looking into Spark, and we have also a lot of in-house expertise in EMR. So we decided to look at uh, Spark running on EMR. Um, we changed our pattern when we adopted Spark on EMR. Uh, previously, we always have a persistent cluster, MPP database cluster running either in hosted solution or running in cloud. Um, in, on, on the Spark for EMR, we're actually launching transient clusters. We only start clusters when we accumulate sufficient batch data, and then we run through the cluster, and when it's finished, we terminate the cluster. Um, that is significant for two reasons. Um, we no longer have stability maintenance issues. Uh, any problems coming up, we just dispose the cluster and launch a new one. And then it has significant cost, cost savings for us because we're not um, running a um, permanent cluster all the time. Um, so in this slide, I'm going to show you um, some of the cost performance benchmarks. Um, you're looking at the three scenarios, um, the MPP running in Colo. You can see it's a large... Uh, installation 48 nodes, and uh, we have multiple of them. Um, then we have the single node MPP running AWS, and then we have Spark running on EMR, um, run, running on different cluster size and uh, instance types. I'll let you chew on these numbers, but uh, I'll just quickly point out some um, key findings here. Um, if you look at the execution time, the, the execution time on an MPP database is hugely variable. Um, we just cannot know exactly when it will finish. But if you look at the Spark, it is very, very consistent. It's almost uh, on the dot. It's always within a minute. Um, it's a very, very stable environment. And then if you look at the monthly cost, on top of the 75% uh, drop we can get from moving MPP from hosted solution to AWS, when we moved to Spark, we're actually getting another 80 to 90% savings. Such significant savings is coming from the fact that uh, I mentioned previously that we are using the transient cluster, but also we are using a much smaller cluster compared to MPP. And uh, um, all these uh, numbers calculated for Spark are actually on-demand instances. So if we, when we switch to Spark, we can, Spark instances, we can get additional savings. Um, in this slide, I'm showing some scalability tests. Um, on the left side, we are looking at execution time and the cost for a different sized cluster. This is for the same data set, but we are creating different sizes of cluster from two core nodes up to six core nodes. We are looking at a range of possibilities. We get a larger drop in the execution time on the lower end and the diminishing returns on the higher end. So this gives us the possibility that you look at different types of the pipeline and pick your sweet spot. If you have a very tight SOA requirement, you actually want to run a larger cluster to ensure you meet that SOA. Well, if you have the pipeline that doesn't have a, such a tight SOA requirement, you may want to use a more cost-effective cluster. On the right side, what we are looking at is a study of what if um, our data volume becomes 10 times. So we stage a data set um, in increments from one times, two times, all the way to, time, to 10 times. And with increment, each increment of the data set, we added six core nodes to the cluster. Um, so an ideal case showed on the blue line is that uh, you would see a flat uh, line of the execution time. We actually found out uh, somewhat uh, nonlinear scalability. 
Um, the key point here is actually it is relatively very, very easy to set this up on EMR. We can run these experiments in a, in a couple of hours, and we can say confidently to our business that what if our business grows 10 times, what are the possible problems we will face, and what kind of engineering efforts we need to put in there to reach that scalability. So I'm going to share some uh, tips. Um, so Spark SQL, uh, you want to use the broadcast hash join. Um, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it is basically you have these uh, very small dimension tables. Uh, you want to replicate them across the executors. And for the large fact tables, you would partition them and spread evenly across the executors. This was not available on our MPP database. Um, it is somewhat hard to enable it on Spark 1.6, and it's very easy in 2.0. So if you are still running 1.6, it may be time to consider upgrading. Um, we look at a UDF. Um, as compared to some of the traditional databases where you, when you switch from SQL engine to a procedural execution language engine, you get some performance penalties. We find that Spark has, does not incur that penalty. In fact, in some cases, you get a better performance. But we primarily use UDF for readability, um, better modularity, and testability, which I will show in the demo. Um, we are able to execute very complex SQLs on Spark. Uh, we're actually taking a 250 lines of uh, SQL for directly from our MVP code database and uh, just uh, drop it into Spark. With the minor changes to the function names, it just runs. So um, this is great. Uh, while we also find out that uh, Spark has a limit of the most optimized code, um, with Spark 2.0, the uh, whole stage code chain, we actually found there's a 64K maximum limit. Uh, when you exceed that limit, you don't get optimized code. Uh, what we do is use some uh, tried hard uh, database uh, techniques, just uh, materialize some section of the code um, into, into files. We write out as parquet and the read back in. In that way, you would collapse the DAG and it might become a much simpler query um, so that you get all the optimized code. Always watch out for your bottlenecks. Um, we found that uh, um, you want to really scrutinize your actions on the Spark driver that is not parallelized. So any actions you do there is, uh, could be a bottleneck. Sometimes the bottleneck is outside the Spark. Uh, we have seen um, JDBC connections, sometimes even um, EMRFS um, having not sufficient capacity uh, provisioned for the uh, DynamoDB. So um, big lessons learned. Um, forklifting from hosted solution to cloud um, sometimes works. Uh, we have mixed results. In our case, we actually have to uh, rewrite our in entire application stack. Uh, the rewrite gives us uh, about 80% uh, code reductions uh, with the Scala. And uh, um, we also increased the testing coverage. So in our case, we actually have to rewrite the stack. You want to rethink about the ETL processing. Um, as I mentioned, the Spark SQL is rock solid, and the 2.0 supports uh, most of the 2003 SQL standard with some of the advanced features. Uh, we found out that uh, most of our ETL pipeline, we don't need MapReduce anymore. MapReduce becomes mostly a niche case. Um, you want to do the stream, streamline your processing. Um, in our MPP database, what we did is we would mark uh, the staging tables with the, all the exceptions and copy those exceptions into exception table and delete them from staging table. That is 
again, a lot of I.O. Um, back and forth. Um, so in the Spark, what we did is, as you read data into the memory, we would mark those records with select statement um, so that we'll all collect all the exceptions into a single column. And the way you write out data, when that column is now, then you would write out to the reporting data set. And the, the, um, that the column is not now, you would write to the exception data set. You want to rethink about your in-memory processing. Spark is a great in-memory engine, but you want to um, look after all the incoming data footprints, particularly the dimension table. I'll mention that uh, our, some of our dimension tables are non-trivial. And uh, uh, we actually, in, in, instead of uh, what MPP database did, where we have the table staged for all pipelines, uh, we, in, the ETL, in the Spark uh, ETL pipeline, we actually um, filtered the uh, dimension both horizontally and vertically so that we are only getting the data we need. Control your unnecessary joins. Um, use your joins effectively. Uh, use it to validate foreign keys as well as project columns for downstream processing. Um, and uh, last but not least, uh, EMR is our excellent common backend. Uh, we took EMR and just uh, plug in the default uh, configurations with the maximized resource allocation. And uh, we just produced sufficient performance for us. We didn't do any um, performance tuning required. The only thing we look at is making sure broadcast hash join is working for us. Um, as we also mentioned previously, uh, EMR gave us very um, consistent performance. So with that, uh, please wish me luck. I'm going to start to do a demo. All right, I think we are, oh, sorry. As a first uh, hiccup, I lost the, the VPN connection. Um, so what you're looking at is a Zeppelin notebook. For those of you who are not familiar with Zeppelin, it is a web-based interface where you can connect directly to Spark and then run your interactive data analysis. Uh, we started a EMR cluster with Spark and the Zeppelin all installed. Um, so I'm going to kick this off as a talk. Um, so in this demo, you are looking at, we first we're going to load up the schema. We're going to load up some of the uh, um, fact tables and the dimensions. Uh, we have a big impression table that is about 12 million records. And then you could get 17 different dimension tables. Um, in the next section, we are showcasing the uh, a Spark join. You have a impression table that is joined to all the 17 different dimensions. Uh, meanwhile, uh, during these dimensions, we also want to uh, make sure you are doing these uh, exception checkings along the way, um, so that for all the foreign keys validations you are looking at, you would join to the dimensions, and if you don't find your corresponding records in the dimension table, you'll just mark them as foreign key violations, and then you just collect them, collapse them into a single column. What we are seeing here is a physical plan. It's an execution plan for the 17-way um, uh, joins. You can see all the broadcast hash joins just happens 17 times. And then we found uh, three exceptions out of, the, uh, out of the 12 million records. 
The next section uh, I'm going to show is the uh, UDF. Before jumping into that, I'm going to show you what we have before. What we had before is a very complex SQL execution. Uh, we are doing some very complex uh, spend calculations. Uh, what you see here is a iterative uh, query blocks. Uh, each query blocks calculates certain columns that then feed into the next query blocks. As you can see here, um, the second query blocks, it takes in some of the uh, columns that's calculating the first query blocks, calculating some additional columns, and then those columns then fed into the next uh, query block. This big giant uh, section repeats several times. Um, this is not a unit, can, we cannot test, unit test this section, and we end up building a very complex integration test for it. Um, with Spark, we are able to rewrite it as a Scala UDF. First of all, we take advantage of the versatile map data type. Uh, we can use the key value data store so that uh, you have the uh, um, spent component name as the key and the spend number as the value. In addition, we can rewrite all these SQL sections as a Spark, uh, as a Scala, and you can see that uh, it's actually a direct translation of a SQL into Scala code. Um, with this, uh, we can run, uh, we would register the UDF, and uh, we would run the query by invoking the uh, um, UDF section. I'm not gonna show you all the uh, 12 million records, but uh, um, the top 20 records here, um, you can see the uh, map of a key and a value data set all generated from this UDF. So with that, I'm gonna hand off to my colleague, Sakit, to talk about data science at the data zoo. All right. Okay, so I'm Sakit, and I am the senior principal data scientist at data zoo. And what my team works on is basically training machine learning algorithms that goes and buys online ads on the internet. So basically when we, we basically sell ads for almost like thousands of advertisers and what our algorithms is, are doing is trying to find when a user comes in, tries to find which advertisers ads fits this user the most and what's the probability that this user is going to click on the ad or show a positive intent for the ad. And to do this, we use a lot of data, as we have been seeing. So let me just explain how the process works. Uh, whenever we saw an ad on the internet, like whenever you see a banner ad or a video ad on YouTube and so on, we create a log line in our database. And those log lines are called as impressions. Now, whenever a user reacts positively to any of our impressions, like maybe click on the ad or maybe go to the advertiser's web page and buy something or check something out, we call that as a positive signal on the internet, and we call it as attributions. So using Spark, what we do is we are running a huge join between all the impressions that we are serving and all the positive signals we are getting on the internet. And this generates a data set where each impression either is a positive or a negative that can be used in a machine learning classifier. Now we give this data to our training models we create classifiers out of them. The classifiers, what they do is whenever a user comes online and see, goes, to, goes to a web page, it tries to predict what's the probability that this user will have a positive, sig a positive signal when I show an ad to him or her. Uh, once we create the models, we evaluate the models before pushing it in production. So we try to see if the models actually are able to predict conversions or not. And once if the models are good, we will push it to S3 
at which time the real-time bidding system will pick up the models and use them for buying more ads that generates more data. And again, we'll train our classifiers using, using the data. So I just wanted to appreciate why this problem is difficult. And I'm pretty sure all of you work with a lot of data. So what we have here is every day, uh, we have to use two petabytes of data and train machine learning algorithms from it. Because all the ads that we are serving on the internet, we are collecting all this data and we are training classifiers from it, right? So it's a lot of data. And we are training thousands of classifiers every day for all the different advertisers that we are serving ads to. Moreover, the real-time bidding system is making almost 2 million decisions every second. Every time a person goes on the web page, we are making a decision to, to show which ad to show to that person and how much do we want to pay for that ad. So we are making 2 million decisions every second on that person. So the system has to be really fast in training as well as during the evaluation time. Secondly, uh, we wanted to create an unattended system. So we are not running these jobs every day. What we wanted to do was the system automatically just collects the data from the internet, from the ads that were served yesterday, creates the new models, again goes out, buys new ads using, using those models, again creates these, um, uh, again gets the data, creates models, and keeps on going. So we wanted to create an unattended system, so we don't have to maintain it. We just have to keep on pushing new code, and it just works. And thirdly, we are in the industry of online ad market. So there are a lot of competitors who are trying to bid on these ads. It's like an auction where everyone is trying to bid on the ad. The person who bids the highest gets to win the ad, right? So uh, we want to have state-of-the-art algorithms because if our competitor has a better algorithm than us, they will be able to buy more efficient ads than us. So it's, we have to keep on adapting to the customer's requirements really quickly. So what I'm going to show in the next few slides is why we are so excited about Spark at DataZoo for the data science tasks. So we ran, ran some benchmarks using Spark. We used three algorithms uh, from the MLlib uh, library. And the first thing we saw was Spark trains in linear time. There's not a lot of overhead when we are training models on Spark. They are really well-tuned. And this is very important for us because we are showing, we have thousands of advertisers we serve to, right? There are some advertisers that are spending hundreds of dollars per day. There are some that are spending thousands, some that are spending tens of thousands of dollars per day. So the largest advertiser generates the most data to train the classifier, and that's the bottleneck in our system. And we have to train our classifiers in linear fashion because as we get more data and as the business scales, we just want to want our algorithms to scale with that. Secondly, as I said, that we are making almost 2 million decisions every second. So we want two things in our models. Firstly, we want our models to have a very small memory footprint so that they can stay in a very fast memory. And secondly, the evaluation time or the bidding time has to be really small. So what we found was Spark's performance was really good out of the box. Now, you can see that the DataZoo models did perform well in these tests, but we have spent like seven years on optimizing these algorithms over and over again to make them as efficient as possible. And Spark's performance out here is out of the box. And we found that it was feasible for us to use the Spark models directly out of the box, which is pretty cool. So just wanted to go over the big picture of what we found when we were using Spark. Now, first of all, now we have a homogeneous platform where our ETL processes are using Spark, and our machine learning processes are also using Spark. So all the data flows in memory, and we are draining models out of it. Uh, secondly, uh, Spark works, works really well on EMR out of the box, which is really important for us because most of our platform is using EMR, and Spark really works well on that. 
we needed very little code to create these classifiers. Like we needed, and I'll show a demo for that. But it was really easy to implement the Spark architecture on the existing platform. And lastly, Spark did provide us stability to actually create an unattended system that just works well. Uh, having said that, I'm going to go to the demo. Just going to run this because it takes a while to. Now remember, I said that we have all the impressions that we serve, and then we also get positive signals on the internet. Now, to combine all the data, data together, which is called an attribution job, you can see that we can do the entire thing in one SQL statement out here on Spark, which is very cool. Once we create the data set, now we have a, a data set that we can use in machine learning. What we are going to do is we are going to divide the data into two parts, the training data, which is 70% of the data, and the testing data, which is 30% of the data. Now, this is really interesting. So what happens is once we have the test set, we are going to create a Spark pipeline to train our models. What I mean here is I'm going to define different stages, like the first stage is to get the data, the second stage is to pre-process the features. So you can use like feature selection algorithms on it. You can use K, uh, top K transforms and stuff like that in this phase. And you pre-process all your features that you're going to use. In the third stage, you are going to assemble all the features back together to create a data set. And in the fourth stage, you are going to select a classifier. Now, as a data scientist, I want to test using many different classifiers. And using this pipeline architecture, I can just replace any classifier here and create different pipelines for different campaigns that we are working with. And finally, I put these uh, stages into a pipeline. Now, here the trainings for the models are going on. This is live. So uh, we created a train data set before, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to convert the train data set into Spark readable format, uh, which is called as train ML data set. And all I'm going to say is I'm going to fit this data into the pipeline. So now the train data set actually gets all the data together, goes through the pre-processing phase where I'm going to run feature selection algorithms and key transforms and stuff like that on it. Then I'm going to reassemble all the features together and run classifiers on it. And all that can be done in this one step. Now the training is going on. So once the model is trained, uh, we also want to evaluate if the model is good or not, because if the model is not able to predict if a person is going to have positive signal or not, it's useless to me, right? So we're going to run an evaluation phase where I'm going to take the 30% of the data, create it into a spark readable format, and then pass it through the trained model. So for the 30% of the data, uh, it's going to go and try to predict probability of conversion for each of the rows. And I also know the ground truth for them, so I know if my predictions are correct or not. So once the predictions are done, okay, so the our training job is finished and now the prediction job is running. Uh, once the predictions are done, I'm going to find the AUC, which is a measure of accuracy for the classifiers. So if it tends close to 100%, that means my, that my classifier is good at uh, predicting a conversion. If it tends close to 50%, it means that it's a random classifier. Uh, so the uh, training is going on right now, uh, the testing is going on right now, and once this job is done, I expect to see what the accuracy of my classifier is. It should be done in a few seconds. So the big picture for this demo is you can see that just using the small amount of code, 
what I was running here was the data that was passed through Dong's ETL. So it was 12 million records that passed through an ETL process during the demo that went through the attribution phase. I created a pipeline for training the data set. The whole training, 12 million rows actually went through a training model, created a model. And now you can see that it's going through the classification phase. And any minute now, it should be done and give me an ROC, which is right here. And not bad, I guess. So that concludes our talk. Uh, do we have time for Q&A?